politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for life, liberty, property, and all that is in between to provide a vision on each of those issues that affects, again, domestic, national security, you name it. We'll focus more a little bit on domestic next week. But for today, national security. Our national security priorities could not possibly be more morally and intellectually bankrupt. Intellectually dyslexic. Upside down, inside out. We're doing things with our military in places we shouldn't even be there. We're making alliances with evil. We're sending a bunch of money everywhere and then hamstringing our allies and then leaving our border wide open, inviting in hundreds of thousands of People that obviously don't share our values, whether they're Islamic, whether they're uh, from Latin America, Venezuela, Colombia, other third world countries. And yet these policies continue because there's no bold GOP opposition or vision that stands in contrast. And I do apologize. I was out yesterday for a family event, a memorial for, for my aunt who had just passed away. And I know a lot of you were looking for the show. I'm sorry I didn't uh, announce it in advance. I was hoping to kind of swing it, but didn't have time. But I'm glad that we have at least a little bit of time since Wednesday to look at some of the initial statements of the new speaker, Mike Johnson. And remember, I pointed out on Wednesday, before he was officially installed as speaker, I said, personally, he seems like a terrific guy real social conservative, principally believes in what we believe in, but does he get the sort of nuances of policy and, and the way it matters at the time it matters? Is he going to be a strategic asset? Is he going to fight for us, be that bold voice? I'm not really seeing it. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll give it another week or so with the budget. I'm not really seeing it. And, and this is what happens when everyone preemptively and prematurely celebrates, oh, you see, the coup worked, it worked. I, I really don't know about that. But whether it's Mike Johnson or anyone else, I'm not seeing anyone give that bold alternative vision. Get our soldiers out of Iraq, Syria, stop allying with Qatar, stop giving money to Gaza, stop giving money to PLO, stop giving money to the Lebanese, stop hamstringing Israel. We don't need to a solidarity, a, you know, turn them into Ukraine, throw billions of dollars at them. Stop with those false choices between either being anti-Israel or molly coddling them with money. Just let them do their thing there. We do our thing here. Put our troops on our border. Shut the border down. Allow states to deport and focus on the visas. Now is the time for Republicans to talk about all these street demonstrations everywhere now in colleges, elsewhere, calling for genocide of Jews. And again, when you let in people like that into a country, it's not just Jews. They'll do that to Christians, to all Americans. And that needs to be shut down. I am not seeing too many Republicans give that vision. Notice I just gave it to you in about 60 seconds. We're not seeing that. So I want to study that contrast, then delve into the problems in terms of what we're letting into the country. First, our sponsor today, given that we don't have a vision on security, you have to take your own security in your own hands. 
Um, one of the ways to remain competent and in practice in your muscle memory, uh, sight alignment, uh, trigger control is iTarget Pro. So it's a laser bullet. You could do dry fire practice, really hone in on what I would say 90 to 95% of your skills without having to spend the time and the money to practice with ammo at the range. You go to itargetpro.com, you get 10% off when you use offer code CR. Uh, you know, my son is now really into it, my 13-year-old. So I use this as an incentive to finish his homework. I'm like, all right, you want to use your iTarget tonight? Um, also, I have to wait until the younger kids go to bed so they don't get the wrong idea. You know, you always have to be careful. You're pointing in, in the right direction, following the rules of safety. Make sure you have no real ammo. It's a lot of fun. You could time your shots, um, draw from the holster so you get the timing and accuracy. Uh, really everything except for the recoil, which you shouldn't be anticipating anyway. So again, get your smartest, safest way to train at iTargetPro, the letter I, targetpro.com, offer code CR. So folks, I, I, I was meaning to tell you guys this before I was out yesterday. On Wednesday, when you had that ceremony, handing over the gavel to Mike Johnson, so traditionally, the other side's leader, in this case, the Democrat leader, you know, kind of introduces the speaker-elect and hands over the gavel, and Hakim Jeffries, the Democrat majority leader, or minority leader, although he kind of is the majority leader, he grabbed the microphone for 13 minutes. And he, now that he had a captive audience, he just went all out as if he were a speaker. And he laid out the Democrat priorities, their demonic, demented vision with no holds barred. And I, I was watching the guy. And I was, I was jealous. I was just admiring him. I was like, where is our leader? You know what? You know what? Let's, let's play a minute of it. You should really listen. I, I know it's nauseating. I'm not going to deny that. But it's worth watching what a vision looks like, what a leader sounds like. And then ask yourself, where is our leader? Take a listen here to about a minute of uh, Hakim the Demented Crazy. House Democrats will continue to push back against extremism in this chamber and throughout the country. House Democrats will continue to protect Social Security, protect Medicare, protect Medicaid, protect our children, protect our climate, protect low-income families, protect working families, protect the middle class, protect organized labor, protect the LGBTQ community, protect our veterans, protect older Americans, protect the Affordable Care Act, protect the right to vote, protect the peaceful transfer of power, protect our democracy, and protect a woman's freedom to make her own reproductive health care decisions. These are blue lines in the sand, and we will work hard to make sure that they are never crossed. All right, folks, say what you want about him, but he has a vision. Blue lines in the sand that cannot be crossed. And he, and he just lays out one after another. In fact, it was interesting. The only thing he didn't cover in those 13 minutes that's kind of a Democrat priority is vaccines. That's like the only thing he didn't touch. But go big or go home. I mean, that was amazing. 
in many, many respects, Democrats and Republicans are kind of like the Arabs and the Israelis. Really, where one side wants to coexist with the other and is too scared to do what needs to be done, and the other side will just wipe you off the map and use your conciliatory tone and gestures and compromise to cut your heart out. That's what the Democrats and Republicans are like. And then, you know, Johnson comes to the microphone, and and again, I, I appreciate that he unabashedly talks about God and the Bible. I, I think that's important that our leaders do that. But it's got to have some policy zeal and strategy behind it as well. Otherwise, it's just another one of these, like, James Langfords, where you get a strong evangelical, but not a strong leader. And and I, I want you to go to C-SPAN, just Google Kim Jeffries' speech, and you'll see the contrast is just so palpable. But anyway, Johnson gave his first t- national interview with Hannity last night, and he was asked about Ukraine policy. Here's what he had to say. I told the staff at the White House today that our consensus among House Republicans is that we need to bifurcate those issues. I agree with your assessment in Ukraine, and that's why the American people are demanding some real accountability for the use of those dollars. Now, we can't allow Vladimir Putin to prevail in Ukraine because I don't believe it would stop there, and it would probably encourage and empower China to perhaps make a move on Taiwan. We have these concerns. Um, we're, We're not going to abandon them, but we have a responsibility, a stewardship responsibility, over the precious treasure of the American people. And we have to make sure that the White House is providing the people with some accountability for the dollars. And we want to. So you see there, the only difference is that he doesn't want to tether Ukrainian funding to Israel and he wants more accountability. But there's no accountability. It's like, what are you fighting for there to win back Crimea? What exactly are you fighting for? So this is my concern about Johnson is that he's just going to be a consensus guy where he tries to, all right, let's get some accountability, let's get Freedom Caucus is working on this, these guys are working on that, but we can't abandon Ukraine. And he said that to another reporter as well in a, in a quick clip that was uh, played maybe the day before. And this is my concern, that Republicans always find the most perfunctory, random way of attacking the left. Meaning, rather than saying Ukraine is a lie and a grift, well, don't tether the funding with Israel. But that, that's not the point. And then also with Israel, they're not giving the right vision either. It's more like, we need to stand with Israel. We need to give them money. That's not really the point. The point is that you need to start attacking Biden for handcuffing them. If you gave me two choices, one is to do all the policies I just mentioned, unwinding the Biden alliance with Iran— but not funding Israel, another one giving Israel money, but then handcuffing them and then funding Hamas, Lebanese, PLO, Iran deal, all that. I mean, it's obviously, it's it's not only that the former is more pro-Israel, it's also America first. It aligns. And then because most Republicans, almost every one of the elected Republicans are just standards with Israel, give them money. To, to certain people on the right, it's creating coalition divisions because it sounds like another Ukraine to them when in fact it's really the opposite if you, if you give a proper vision on it. Let Israel handle the Middle East without us getting in their way and funding their enemies and having troops protecting the Shiites in Syria and Iraq. 
while the Shiites attack us. And then now, last night, Biden ordered bombings of the Shiites. But I, I understand you want to respond to them. But then why are we there to begin with? Let Israel handle the Middle East. Let our people handle our hemisphere, our border. And I want to talk about our hemisphere today with our guest. But first, our next sponsor today, something that will make you happy as I raise your blood pressure, is QP Goat Soap. I look forward to my shower every night because QP Goat Soap is really, it's it's the most, it's the most tactile soap I've ever used. It's also the healthiest soap, and it's also made by our 16-year-old Blaze subscriber, Christian homeschooling entrepreneur, uh, Quinn Pittman. That's QPGoatSoap.com, stands for Quinn Pittman. Use promo code Daniel for 10% off your order. They are running their same uh, order this year of all four seasons of soap. They smell great um, for your bathroom and feel great on your body. Um, Natural oils. And actually, they're the only real soap. The Dove Zest stuff you get is not real soap. It's kind of the junk food equivalent of soap. Very inflammatory, bad on your skin, dries out your skin every time you come out of the shower. I have dry skin, and since I started using QP Goat Soap, it's just terrific. So you get free shipping for over 30 bucks and $99 for all four seasons. Actually makes a good Christmas present. For those of you who have run out of ideas, very interesting uh, idea, as, as well as something that's extremely useful for yourself. At, again, QPGoatSoap.com, promo code Daniel for 10% off. So before we get to our guest, I just want to preface the border stuff. Um, And again, no vision from Republicans. You have this piece from Daniel Greenfield at Front Page Mag. Some of you might not have heard of this. A Palestinian asylum seeker was arrested Thursday. This is last Thursday in Texas. State of Texas after posting videos of himself on TikTok Firing AR-15 style rifles, was in contact with people who shared a radical mindset and may have been plotting an attack, federal prosecutors allege. So Haib Abuyasa, 20, was arrested Thursday after the FBI interviewed uh, or reviewed videos of him on social media showing him firing automatic uh, rifles or semi-automatic rifles at a range in Houston. He had been in direct contact with others who shared a radical mindset, conducting physical training and is trained with weapons to possibly commit an attack. According to the affidavit, Abu Yasa is a Jordanian citizen who came to the U.S. in 2019 after applying for a tourist visa in Jerusalem and indicating he was a Palestinian citizen. By the way, you see, as they always say, Jordan is the Palestinian state. Um, He overstayed his visa, of course, and applied for asylum in 2020, which is still pending. So, by the way, that happened under the Trump administration. Um, How many of these are there? We allow these hyenas into our country through our front door. Now, there is a bill. I don't have the number in front of me. Andy Oglis from Tennessee and Tom Tiffany from Wisconsin, they introduced a bill that would mandate that DHS prioritize the deportation of Palestinians who are non-citizens here. Uh, evicting violent Islamic criminals that entered deviously act the evict act. Um, so that's something there. Obviously, you're never going to get them to do it, which is why we need to authorize state deportations so states can do this. 
because the feds will never listen to this even if you passed it. But these are the sorts of things we need to put into the bill. You know, there, there is unanimous support for Israel among Republicans, and, that, and that's a good thing. But parlay that into something useful. Stop with these solidarity resolutions that they just passed or even the, the aid. We always love giving money. We're bankrupt. It's policies that don't cost us anything that will help ourselves and help Israel. And number one is you don't allow Israel's enemies that are America's enemies into America. It's that simple. It really is. The other article I wanted to read to you concerning our border is how Nicaragua is weaponizing migration against us. Ortega is a big communist leader there. And what he is, and we'll talk about this with Joseph Humeyer coming up, but he basically is bringing in illegals to Nicaragua so he could fly them into. Uh, Tijuana or other places in Mexico, and they come over our border. So what that allows them to do is right now, um, as, as many illegals as there are, there's a little bit of a deterrent in that the Darien Gap is very tough. I mean, it's treacherous. A lot of people die in the Panamanian jungle. But more than 260 charter flights believed to be carrying migrants from Haiti have touched down in Nicaragua in recent months, according to flight data and experts in the region. The flow of migrants has left the Biden administration Latin American leaders scrambling for solutions. No, it, no, it's not. This is AP. The Ortega government knows that they have few important policy tools at hand to confront the U.S., so they have armed migration as a way of attack. So we're being owned by Venezuela and Nicaragua and Haiti and Cuba in our own hemisphere as we sit and referee Sunni-Shia civil wars in Syria and Iraq. This is the vision we need from Republicans that we're lacking. This is the sort of thing we need in our budget bills. That we are not going to allow anyone into our border and also arm states with the legal ability to deport. That's what the budget fight needs to be over. And use what's going on. Use the, I mean, the endless, what, what, what you're finding, what I'm finding in these college campuses, obviously you have white liberals roped into it. But it's, it's the fact that you look at the younger generation, and I'm going to get better numbers for you when I get a chance to research this. But you look at people 20 years old as opposed to 80 years old. The percentage of people that compose 20-year-olds in America today that hail from families that are from the third world – is insanely high. And again, we've always had people come from, their parents come from different places. They grow up, they're, they're genuine Americans. But it's a numbers game. And when you let in that many people from third world countries with third world mindsets, some of that is anti-Semitism, some of that is thinking that Hamas is uh, liberators, they're a bunch of liberators, that's what you're bringing to our college campuses. And it's not just college campuses. That's the harbinger of the sentiment of the next generation of America. It's a generation you can't avoid. This is the vision I'm not seeing. They're just arguing over dollars and cents and how much money. And, you know, I, I don't want quite that much for Ukraine. And I, I don't I want it separate from Israel. But ultimately, I'll give to Ukraine. And then Israel is all about money. 
It's not about money. It's about a mindset and policies that first and foremost benefit America. And then by osmosis, obviously, they, they certainly benefit Israel by, by reversing the Iran deal, stop funding their enemies, and stop handcuffing them. You know, obviously, there are some people on the right that don't want to give money to anyone. I understand it. We're bankrupt. But I think if we simply just stopped the policies of the Biden administration that are hamstringing Israel, focus on our own border, focus on our own visa system, whether you want to hand a few billion to Israel or not, in addition you know, to what they've gotten, look, that, that, that's a minor dispute in my mind. But what Republicans are doing is they're not speaking out against these policies. A lot of them think we need to be in Iraq for some reason only Allah knows. But I support Israel. But, but what, what does that mean? Support America. But the way you do that, that's also pro-Israel, is more than handing Israel blood money, which is really what it is. It's here's some money and now commit suicide. And now we get to the State Department gets to tell you what to do. I'd rather it the other way around. It's a vision no one else is giving, but it's the only pro-America moral vision on foreign policy that then frees up our soldiers. I mean, Biden just deployed 900 soldiers to the theater. So it gets a bunch of people on the right to think, oh, another war for Israel, when in fact it's being done to hamstring Israel. And, you know, you just have more of our soldiers as sitting ducks where low-cost drones from these terror groups that were there to actually protect and shield from Israel could go and attack. It's just ridiculous. Keep the shipping lanes in the Persian Gulf open, and that's it. And allow Israel to do their job there. We do our job in our own theater. And what is our job in our own theater? We have our guests coming up. Our guest segment is sponsored by our friends at Barrel Buddy. Uh, I know we just talked about dry fire practice, but inevitably you will go to the range. Inevitably you will shoot you know, a couple hundred rounds a month if you want to practice properly. Well, your gun gets dirty. If it gets dirty, it's not in top-notch condition to be prepared when uh, BLM comes a-knocking or one of uh, uh, the jailbreaked violent career criminals comes knocking on your door uh, and needs a couple of rounds from your gun. Make sure it doesn't jam. The best way to make sure it doesn't jam is to keep it clean with BarrelBuddy.com uh, rather than the drip and splatter-prone patches or claws that leave lint and fibers here they have designed these cartridges that are very versatile but they're they're firm they go right through your barrel you just make sure you get the one that's marked for your caliber gun um, and then you can clean the other parts of the gun as well with it the metallic parts you need to clean uh, use one to clean it buff use another one to lube it uh, very uh, gently and then boom you're ready to go uh, this is the cheapest way of cleaning your gun. 50 Barrel Buddy cartridges in one packet for just 15 bucks at BarrelBuddy.com today. So folks, in the ultimate irony of all ironies, as we have our troops spread out precariously as sitting ducks in Syria and Iraq, doing uh, things that only Allah could understand, um, literally servicing the Shiites while the Shiites are attacking us, we have our own Syria in our own hemisphere that we've ignored. Um, it's truly remarkable. I don't remember how many years ago it was, but when we had Joseph Humeyer on, he's our resident 
a Latin American affairs expert, which is really our part of the world that we should have been paying attention to uh, much more than the Middle East, he warned that we're going to have our own Syria in Venezuela. Literally warned that. And that was at a time when the main migration was still coming from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, maybe a little bit of Cuba and Haiti as well. And then lo and behold, the last year and a half, it's been all Venezuela. I mean, it's everywhere, but it's Venezuela. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, it's not just the fact that you have a bunch of punks and prisons and gangs that Maduro's letting out and just in general, a third world migration that's being weaponized against us. It's not good for our economy. It's not good for our culture. It's, it's not good for anyone. But you do have a problem of potentially Hezbollah. So, you know, we, we've talked about the increase, exponential increase, at least in apprehensions of Syrian nationals and even Iranian nationals, other people from North Africa. But typically you're measuring that in the hundreds, sometimes over the course of two years, in the thousands. We, we saw that especially from, from Turkey. But Venezuela, I mean, my gosh, we apprehended 66,000 in one month last month. We're getting this every single month. Biden just gave parole through TPS illegally to 472,000 Venezuelans. Venezuela has a massive Lebanese-Syrian diaspora in that country. They have leaders of their government who are of Lebanese-Syrian descent. And then you have a visa mill there where they give documents to all sorts of people directly from the Middle East and elsewhere that they could come here and they're treated like Venezuelans who are treated as uh, priority by the Biden administration. This is a serious problem that needs to be dealt with. In other words, rather than us treating Venezuela as like, well, that's kind of like the New Mexico, you know, where we just let everyone in, which we shouldn't. And then there's the SIA, the special interest alien countries, where we'll pretend to give more scrutiny. No, Venezuela, the source of our largest migration, needs the most scrutiny. That should be designated as an SIA country. So with us is Joseph Humeyer himself, a former Marine who is now executive director of the Center for a Secure Free Society. Again, our foremost expert that we have here on Latin American Affairs. You can follow him at J.M. Humeyer on Twitter. Hey, Joseph, it's been a long time. Thanks so much for coming back. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. It's always a pleasure. All righty. So, so what, what is the latest? People see a massive um, migration from Venezuela, kind of view it as, oh, Venezuela is the new, you know, Mexico, Guatemala, now you have Venezuela. Why is Venezuela qualitatively a bigger problem? Okay, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll get into the, the specific about what makes Venezuela different from all these other cases of, of countries of origin of mass migration. But let's, let's start with this. Let's start with, we don't get, and you, you alluded to this in your intro, we don't get to the numbers that we're seeing today, you know, these kind of historic numbers of 60,000, 70,000 encounters apprehensions per month, uh, you know, upwards of 2.5 to 3 million per year. You don't get to those numbers until the Venezuelan mass migration connects with everything else, the Haitian, the Caribbean, the African, the extracontinental, the Central American, the Mexican. Uh, why? Because Venezuela is the largest migration outflow in the world. You know, this wasn't the case, uh, you know, some years ago when we talked about it before. They were always second to Syria for a long time. And, you know, Syria's a war zone. They went through 10 years of civil war. Um, and then you had Ukraine pop off, you know, that was in the war that happened last year. And there was obviously a mass migration that came out of there. 
Uh, but Venezuela is now number one, and there's 7.7 million Venezuelans that have left that country, more than 10%, or upwards of 20% of the country uh, since 2014. So let me start with that, because I don't think people understand the dimension of numbers that we're talking about. You know, these are huge amounts of people in migration. So to the second part about your question about, you know, what makes this qualitatively different was a long time, you know, Venezuela has been under control of an autocratic regime for a long time. You know, first Hugo Chavez, now Nicolas Maduro. And from the very beginning of Hugo Chavez's tenure in Venezuela, he aligned himself with the Middle East, more specifically with Iran, with Hezbollah, with Hamas, uh, and, and the Palestinian authorities, uh, and uh, with Syria, with Bashar al-Assad. And what these uh, governments, these regimes did, is they created uh, basically a, a logistical bridge, uh, an air bridge, a sea bridge, uh, to be able to move weapons, drugs, migrants, uh, all kinds of things from one side of the Atlantic in the Middle East to the other side of the Atlantic in South America. And so we worked on this quite a bit. And, and, and what we started realizing was to be able to create the logistical mechanisms to have this bridge be solidified, you needed to have a documenting mechanism. Like you needed to be able to provide not fake, but actually real Venezuelan government documents. We're talking about visas, passports, national ID cards, bank accounts, property records, like things that actually legitimize you as somebody that you can say you are when you may not be that person. Um, and Venezuela did that uh, beginning in 2007 for a multitude of countries from the Middle East, and they extended it to other countries in Africa and other places. It's basically an immigration security scheme. Um, and they uh, started documenting suspected members of these terrorist organizations. We, we, we analyzed um, 173 of these cases uh, that were uh, foreign nationals from Iraq, from Lebanon, from Syria, from Jordan, from the Palestinian territories that had received documentation in Venezuela saying that they were Venezuelan, either nationalized or in some cases, actually, they went as far as saying they were originally born in Venezuela. But they weren't. They were people from the Middle East. A lot of them didn't speak Spanish. A lot of them never visited Venezuela. But they're having a full document suite of records so that they could travel anywhere in the world, apply for a visa, in some cases not even a visa, and just say, I'm a Venezuelan when they're not. So that made Venezuela qualitatively different because they did it. I mean, this is for intelligence people and intelligence personnel. This is like a dream come true. Any case officer, any intelligence officer from the CIA, the Mossad, or whoever, would love to have another country legitimize their... Ident their fake identity, their, their cover identity. Uh, well, Venezuela did this not just for, for intelligence service, they did this for thousands of people. We don't even know the numbers. I mean, the, I, I've heard us upwards of 30,000 people. Who knows, right? Um, so I do know about these 173 because we looked at these cases, and these were people that were clearly operational elements of a uh, terrorist group such as Hamas or Hezbollah or were closely linked to the intelligence services of Iran, Iraq, and in some cases, some other countries in the Middle East. So these were individuals that were, they weren't like normal individuals, they were individuals that had networks, that had knowledge, that had know-how. Yeah. yeah, so you're not even so, talking about just your, your, you know, Joe Gaza, Joe Damascus, you know, I love Sharia, jihad, kill the Jews type of guy, you know, just general sentiment. You're talking about an operational guy close to Intel or part of Hezbollah or something like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'll give you an example. There's this case of a guy named Hakim Dia Fatah, right? He's a Palestinian Venezuelan. It's very relevant today because of Hamas and the attacks in Israel. So this individual took the same 
uh, flight school in Florida. Well, I think it was in Florida, but it was somewhere, somewhere in the U.S. He took the same flight school as one of the 9-11 hijackers. I think it was Ani Anor. It was one of the hijackers of 9-11. Uh, he he didn't participate that we know about actively in, in the 9-11 terrorist attack. But after the 9-11 terrorist attack, he hightailed it from the United States. He was living in the United States under a visa. <laughs> he hightailed it from the United States. He goes back to Venezuela. The FBI goes after him. And this is around 2001, 2002 maybe. And they ask Hugo Chavez, the president of China, they say, you know, where is this guy? We're looking for him. We think he may be involved in this massive terrorist attack that we had in U.S. soil. And he and Hugo Chavez was like, you know, me no sé, I don't know, he, we don't know anything about him. So they let it go. Uh, more than a decade later, I can't remember the exact year, I think it was 2015, but I many years later, this individual, Hakim Dia Fatah, he pops up. Guess where? He pops up uh, near the West Bank. He pops up uh, in Jordan. He gets arrested in Jordan because he was organizing the financing for a potential terrorist attack against the Alambi Bridge, the bridge between Jordan and Israel. And he gets arrested, and in the document, and we look, we examined the case in Jordan, in the document, they call him a member of Hamas Latin America, right? And Hamas the interesting thing Latin is... Latin America. Yeah, they, they, that's how Wait, they described what? it in the, docu- in, the, in, the, in the legal document, right? And this guy, we never knew... Let me finish the story. So this guy basically, he comes up before trial in the Jordanian authorities for planning this terrorist attack or supporting the terrorist attack. And the Venezuelan consulate, the official Venezuelan consulate in Amman, in Jordan, finances his legal defense. And he gets off because he says he's crazy. Like, the guy's nuts, right? He's insane. So they, he gets off from this, and then he disappears. We, to this day, don't know if this guy was actually born in Venezuela or when he was born in the Palestinian territories because he has two birth certificates. Like, who knows which one's the real mm-hmm. one, you know? This is the level of complexity, right? And this is ties 9-11 to terrorism in the Middle East. This is the level of complexity that we're dealing with when we talk about Venezuela. They basically broke the immigration mold when they did this scheme. So we have no clue. When we're talking about, you know, I don't know how many Venezuelans have arrived at the U.S. southern border this year, but, you know, in the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, not probably definitely hundreds of thousands, we don't know how many of them are actually Venezuelans. Now, I, I venture to guess that large percentages of them sure. are Venezuelans. But, but, I mean, even if it's like 2 3%, I mean, that's of the numbers we're talking about, this is talking about thousands of people. In, in other words, just to contextualize, when we talk about uh, Middle Eastern countries, so you say, okay, we, we had 100 come from this country this year. With Venezuela, it, it's several hundred thousand we caught this year. So, yeah, yeah I mean, the majority of them are going to be kind of you know typical Venezuelan, a lot of the, the gangbangers that Maduro let out of jail, and they're a problem in their own right. Um, but our government views illegal immigration as just kind of the cost of doing business, or in the case of Biden's uh, Biden administration, they welcome it. But so, so they're not worried about that. But, but officially, you know, you say I'm from Syria, I'm from Jordan, I'm from uh, Gaza, the so-called West Bank. You show up at the border, you're going to get an FBI interview. You're treated like a special yeah. interest alien, alien, and and there's a a scrutiny. There's a alarm bell start going off. But what you're saying is that you could have tons of people from Venezuela. I mean, they they already have that uh, cross-pollination at the intel operational level. So forget about certainly just the radical. Right now, there's a big discussion. People are concerned, obviously, about 
you know, people from Gaza showing up at our border, which obviously, you know, when you look at the the genocidal, uh, pe- I mean, these people are so violent that Egypt and Jordan don't want them. So you show up on our border. I mean, that's like what Europe has times 10. Well, all right. So you're from, you know, assuming our gov- government's not directly going to be subversive, they'll they'll catch that. But you're saying they could totally have Venezuelan documents and, oh, yeah, you're just kind of the Venezuelans uh, catch and release. It, it, exactly. I mean, that's just a, a workaround from the entire border enforcement uh, initiative about looking at extracontinental migrants that come from uh, countries that have a high density of terrorist presence. That's the whole SIA thing. The special interest alien with the special interest is because they come from countries where there's a high density of terrorist organizations, mostly in Middle East and Africa. Well, you get around all that when you get into Venezuela, because that's not considered a country with a high density of terrorist uh, presence, because they don't consider Venezuela a terrorist-sponsoring country. It should be. I mean, there's a couple of things here, policy-wise, that obviously should have happened years ago. Uh, Venezuela should be considered a state sponsor of terrorism, because they are. They provide their immigration services to help terrorists, which, you know, every, every other immigration service, not every other, but most immigration services in the world is meant to deter terrorists. This one actually helps move terrorists. And the second you mentioned, and I made this recommendation early on in the Trump administration, I said that we need to designate Venezuela as a special interest alien country. Now, that clashed with some policies about, because we didn't actually have a policy on Venezuela at the time in terms of refugee, because we we classified them as refugees. And and it clashed a little bit with the policy of recognizing another government, which was the Juan Guaido government, right? So the maximum pressure against the Nicolas Maduro regime. But nonetheless, I said, listen, from, you know, putting all the the kind of like the political stuff aside, just on a real, just fact-based, uh, there's no way that we can know if all these Venezuelans are going to come here. And at the time, they weren't coming in the numbers that they are now. But we, we would know, we would know that uh, if they're all Venezuelan. And, and we had this issue, you know, the, we, like, the reason we took this research initiative, like we had a report that came out in 2014 about this. But the reason we first got alerted to it was actually because of Canada. I'm going back to 2010, 2011. C- Canadian Immigration Services actually identified uh, people saying that they were from Venezuela applying for asylum in Canada and didn't speak Spanish and, or didn't even know anything about the topography, about the, about the country of Venezuela. So they started realizing that there was a scheme going on, and that's actually what alerted us to this, why we investigated it, why we put out a report in 2014, why I testified before Congress in 2015, uh, and then why I told the Trump administration that you have to basically have a special interest alien cat- categorization. It wasn't look like a, a very, like, I mean, I think there's people that agreed with that, but it wasn't necessarily an urgency. Because the numbers weren't there. Yeah. At the time, there weren't that many Venezuelans arriving to the U.S. southern borders. So like, you know, we're more worried about the, the, the gains from Salvador and Honduras and or we're now about the Haitians. But now it's all Venezuela, right? And I'll tell you one thing, uh, Daniel, you know, the next country that's going to do this is Colombia. Colombia's going to do this. And, and you know, uh, Venezuela but, but was already kind of Isn't that second-degree Venezuela? You're saying in its own right? I mean, isn't that all the Venezuelans are in Colombia? Yeah, there's that. There's the fact that there's all these Venezuelans in Colombia. But there's also the fact that the Maduro regime has basically subverted Colombia and propped up a proxy, which is Gustavo Petro, the current president of Colombia, mm-hmm. and they're already creating agreements to synchronize the two countries. Uh, but I say this in terms of immigration because you now Venezuela had a good portion of its population already diminished even before you know the mass migration surge that happened to the U.S. southern border. Uh, most of that went to South America, some went to Europe and Spain. It's now recently coming up north. But you're talking about like Venezuela's. You know, they're, they're a little, I, I don't, we don't know the exact numbers of the population, but it's probably around 25 million. It's, it's south of 30 million. Colombia is 51, 52 million people. It's mm-hmm. still like it was a vibrant country until it, the socialists took it over. 
And uh, we're going to start seeing mass migration from Colombia. We're already starting to see it. Uh, we started, like, I think, the month of May and, and June, maybe July. Uh, Colombia ended up becoming the second highest uh, nationality that was being encountered on the southern border. That kind of went down a little bit over the more recent months. But you're going to start to see this because the Venezuelan conundrum is going to be extended to Colombia. Uh, and, and the same kind of immigration security scheme tying the Middle Eastern actors is going to be put in Colombia. I, I, one little small anecdotal sign of this is if you watch the, the, the disinformation and the rhetoric of some Latin American politicians related to the, to the war in Gaza and, and, and Hamas and, and uh, atrocious terrorist attack against Israel, the president of Colombia, Gustavo Petro, he did over 100 tweets. He was like a Hamas spokesperson. <laughs> he was literally wow. talking about how Israel is an apartheid state. He compared Israel to, he compared the situation in Gaza to Auschwitz. <laughs> he, he like <laughs> compared Israel to Nazis. Israeli to Nazis. So, he, he, he got condemned by everybody. He got condemned by the, all the major Jewish organizations, the Israeli embassy, the U.S. government. Everybody condemned him. But the big question that Colombians had is, why does this guy, why does our president care so much about so th- Hamas th- that's and Gaza? Right. That's what I was going to ask you. How did this happen with Venezuela, now Colombia, this cross-pollination, the cultural ties, maybe several hundred thousand potential Muslims or people of Syrian-Lebanese descent in Venezuela. You know, P- Americans don't know about this. They, they view anything south of, of, of the Rio Grande River as you speak Spanish, you're Catholic, um, eat spicy food, and that's about all we know about what goes on south of the Rio Grande River. But how did that, Where, like you said, where is this obsession? And then also, as you um, explain that, you mentioned before Hamas in Latin America. So I think we're familiar with Hezbollah, uh, as more yeah. of an international organization. Where the heck does that come from? No, okay, so, so a couple of things here, and, and you know this, Daniel, and I mean, just for your listeners, um, Hamas is part of the same proxy network. They call the Axis of Resistance, right? As Hezbollah, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, the brigades in Iraq, you know, the, all the militias in Iraq and Syria, and the common denominator is Iran, right? Iran's, they're not called the world's leading state sponsor terrorism for nothing. They literally build proxy networks, mostly terrorist networks, all around the Middle East and in the world. Uh, and so Hamas and Hezbollah have a strategic alignment. Uh, one of the parts of that alignment is the financing, right? Because, you know, we talk a lot about Iran's money that they give to Hamas and Hezbollah, particularly Hamas in this case, to finance that war effort that they're initiating against Israel. Okay, sure, they get a lot of money from Iran. But Hamas figured out a long time ago that that spigot is, is sensitive because Iran gets sanctioned, Iran has diplomatic, uh, you know, things that they have to maneuver through. So they need to find an alternative source of revenue, and that's where Venezuela comes in. And this is actually just what I'm saying, because there's actually an indictment in the Department of Justice. It's, uh, it came out in 2020, this indictment. It was unsealed. It was an indictment against a Syrian-Venezuelan uh, uh, former member of their Venezuelan Congress. His name was um, Adela Zabayer. Uh, this, this guy, this, this, this congressman from Venezuela, was he was you know total nutty. He actually went to the Syrian civil war to fight on behalf of Bashar al-Assad. He sought a leave of absence from his <laughs> uh, congressional term in Venezuela to go fight in the resistant army of, of Bashar al-Assad. That's like, very Spanish-sounding uh, name there. Yeah, yeah, that is about here. So, so my point to that is that the indictment was focused on him because they accused him of basically being uh, a narco-terrorist uh, that's tied to you know funneling drugs into the United States. But what the indictment actually says, and it, it says it talks about this agreement in 2009 that was established between the leaders of the al Samba brigades of, of, of Hamas, which is you know, the militia of Hamas, uh, Hezbollah, 
the Assad dictatorship in Syria and Iran and Venezuela that they met in Damascus. And they gave a lot of details about this meeting that they had in Damascus. And the whole upshot was to create a scheme to transport cocaine from Colombia, Venezuela to the Middle East and to bring back weapons, uh, small arms to uh, Venezuela and Colombia to give to the FARC and other uh, guerrilla groups that they had fighting in, in South America. In 2014, these shipments began and they started happening on a regular basis. And this indictment covers it, right? So my point to that is, you know, when you talk about narco-terrorism, right, Hamas benefits from the narco trade in Latin America, much like Hezbollah does. Not at the scale that Hezbollah does, because Hezbollah is a lot bigger, a lot stronger. Sure. But Hamas is, you know, just like Hezbollah's kind of try to embed and infiltrate all the Lebanese communities around the world, including Latin America, Hamas has done the same with the Palestinian communities. And if you go to Latin America, there's some very prevalent Palestinian communities, maybe not in size. The only country that I know sizably has a Palestinian population is Chile, uh, which is, I think, why the Chilean president is probably the most anti-Semitic president in all Latin America. Jeez. But uh, Central America, Honduras, uh, Salvador, um, you know, parts of Panama, uh, parts of Colombia, they have uh, parts of Brazil. They have sizable. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say so much size. They have they have powerful, uh, affluent Palestinian communities. Now, most of those aren't Muslim. But it doesn't matter because they have that kind of they've been brainwashed by that free Palestine narrative. Right. And the free Palestine narrative has been hijacked as kind of pro Hamas messaging. Mm-hmm. And so Hamas has used that to be able to install itself into Latin America and the Palestinian authorities. They're not recognized everywhere, but they do. They are recognized in some places like Venezuela and Brazil that they use their diplomatic channels to open doors for Hamas to get more access to these illicit actors. So there's a network here that exists that's already pre-established, it's decades old. Uh, and Venezuela, much, much like everything else we're talking about, has strengthened it. Uh, there's indictments that actually uh, discuss this, and, and, and this is something we got to pay attention to. It, it is just spellbounding to listen to you and think how many years we spent playing footsies with Sunnis and Shias in the Middle East, helping out Iran, actually, with all of our actions, while they subverted through Venezuela and some other countries in our own hemisphere, the drug trade, immigration, visa mills, and then now it's the largest source of, of our migration to, to our own border. And, uh, you know, we're not worried about that. It's just, it's just really, really bizarre. So aside from designating Venezuela as an SIA country, what are some other action items you feel that if we, I mean, obviously the Biden administration is not going to take it, but maybe someone running for president, uh, you know, as a Republican needs to address? Yeah, I think there's a, a few things. Um, well, let me just expand a little bit on the SIA thing, because I think that that's uh, such an important, you know, I mentioned it, you know, five years ago, and I think it's even more important today because it changes the whole entire conversation about the southern border. Because right now they try to use the SIA conversation as kind of like a peripheral aspect of what's happening on the border because the mass migrations aside leads and problems in our asylum laws and everything like that. But if you designate Venezuela as a SIA, now the majority of the people that are coming to our southern border are SIAs, you know? <laughs> and it forced you to deal with the yep. bigger problem, which is why is the entire world coming and collapsing our southern border? But aside from that, I think, um, you know, I mentioned that I think Venezuela should be designated as a state sponsor of terror. That allows us to go above and beyond the sanctions of Venezuela, which obviously the Biden administration is easing and lifting, but allows us to make it radioactive diplomatically to engage with Venezuela. So a lot of Latin American countries become very allergic. Uh, and then not just Latin America, European and other countries that, that don't want to get uh, near. That, that, that really worked with uh, Syria in many respects. It also worked to some level with Iran. Uh, although nowadays, you know, that's becoming weaker by the day because, you know, China, Russia are, are enablers of all that. 
but I think it's still worth doing. Uh, and then, and then I would say, you know, the, the fundamental challenge that we're going to have, you know, let's say in 2025, if there's a new president in the United States is we're going to have another bite at the apple trying to solve the Venezuelan challenge. Um, the Trump administration was the first, uh, administration in my lifetime that actually took Venezuela seriously and employed a strategy it's called maximum pressure, uh, which I think had its merits about basically putting Venezuela on defense because they're so used to being on offense. They just all kinds of chaos and have no consequences. But I actually think we have to, the one big difference that we have to understand, and, and this would actually change this whole maximum pressure policy would be to not look at Venezuela as a regime, but rather as a network because it doesn't work like a, a regime. It, it doesn't have like, you know, ministers don't mean the same thing in Venezuela as they do in, in Ecuador and other countries. Um, Maduro is not the head of a kingpin. He's not the only guy there that's in charge of everything. He's just one node in a much bigger network that actually extends all the way as we're talking about to the Middle East. Um, you know, there's a reason why there's more Venezuelans in Syria than there is in Brazil. When even though it's right next door to Venezuela, that's because Syria is a source of support and power to this network that's operating inside Venezuela. So I think when you look at it as a network, what you have to do is you have to basically map the network throughout the entire continent, all of Latin America, from Mexico down to Argentina, and you have to eliminate the bad nodes in the network. The hardest place to do it is inside Venezuela because you don't have a lot of control there. But the first place you do it is in Mexico. Uh, you basically have to go to Mexico and you have to root out all, you have to do all elements of national power, diplomatic, economic, intelligence to basically root out the Venezuela-Mexico connection, you know? Uh, and you got to go after the transnational criminal, the Mexican cartels, like everyone loves to talk about the Mexican, Mexican cartels are only as powerful as they are today because of the support they get from Venezuela. They, they establish, they, they control the distribution, you know, one third of all the cocaine that's distributed around the world comes from the Colombia-Venezuela border. The Mexican cartels are down there because if they can control that, they have the money to fund their, their all the conflicts that they do inside Mexico. But that's just one element. Venezuela and Mexico have uh, uh, agreements on all kinds of elements, and we need to break that. Uh, and then the other last part I, I point to this is um, Venezuela is a platform. It's not like it's, it's a, so a country that lost its sovereignty years ago. It's a platform uh, by Iran, by Russia, by China that's using this platform as a weapon to attack the United States. Drugs, migrants, and terrorists is the first wave of that attack. That's actually meant to break our will to fight. Uh, but the next waves are going to be much stronger. Uh, and I think we have to start to figure out, like, if we could isolate Venezuela uh, further even than what we did during the Trump administration, uh, and then we have to go in and we have to figure out how we're going to basically uh, uh, contain uh, what Venezuela is trying to export throughout the region. Yeah. And, and I, I can tell you the first target. It's going to happen really soon. This is actually the first time I'm saying this publicly because I don't think I've, I've mentioned it to people on the Hill and in the private meetings, but the, the Taiwan of Latin America or the Ukraine of Latin America, you want to call it, that's more like Taiwan, though, is Guyana. And Maduro is doing everything to go after Guyana right now. Wow. Uh, he, came back from, he came back from Beijing in uh, September. As soon as he came back from China, he basically ignited a centuries-old border dispute with Guyana and is holding a referendum uh, to basically ask the Venezuelans, would they support him if he invades Guyana? You know? Because two-thirds of Guyana, according to Venezuelans, is their territory, you know? Uh, and wow. that's going to create a, a, a Gaza-level, Ukraine-level, Taiwan-level conflict in Latin America, and we're nowhere near prepared for that. You know? Unbelievable! That what a what a presentation there. Um, I had one, one more question just before we let you go. So, what I'm noticing is that 
it used to be you would have people north of Panama would just come, you know, land bridge, whether they're coming from El Salvador or Honduras, they go through Mexico, the traditional routes, uh, through the cartels, pay the piso, they show up in the Rio Grande Valley or wherever they show up, Tucson. Okay. But when you had the extra continentals, they would fly in somewhere, depending on their nationality, to one of the countries, sometimes Venezuela, sometimes Brazil, uh, get up to Colombia, go through the Darien Gap in Panama, and you have that land bridge. But what I'm seeing is from people I trust, they tell me a lot of Syrians, even Afghanis, are flying directly into places in Mexico, including Tijuana, right near our own border. Yeah. What's up with that? What's behind that? No, and, and not just Mexico. They're flying into Central America, into Salvador, into Guatemala, into Nicaragua and other places. Uh, you know, these, these, these actors, these, I, I call them transnational, transregional threat actors, they're states and non-states, um, they're always a step ahead. Um, I'll, I'll give you like one example, and then I'll address the question of the, of the flights. Like even the fentanyl issue, right? Like what's the big discussion right now in the United States? Oh, should we go in and, and dismantle the labs, the fentanyl labs in, uh, in Mexico? Well, guess what the Sinaloa cartel is doing? They're moving over to Colombia, Panama, and Venezuela, and they're setting up fentanyl labs there. <laughs> you know, because they already know that eventually maybe the United States is going to actually go after these labs even more than they're doing now. So they're always a step ahead. So I think the um, these human smuggling networks are figuring out that eventually the United States is going to get, or not even the United States, it's just the, you know, the international actors are going to get real strict on the Darien Gap, you know? Uh, eventually they're going to get really strict on uh, the flights to Mexico. Uh, and, and eventually they're going to start clamping down. And, and what they want to catalyze is the balloon effect. They're going to say they want to stay a step ahead and move to other territories where this human smuggling scheme will never end. And then if you get strict on so that's the balloon effect, right? You clamp down on one, it pops up somewhere else. Uh, but the, what I, I, you know, Daniel, I'm telling you, like, this, this logistical architecture is already built. Uh, it's very hard to dismantle. Uh, we, we we needed to dismantle this ten years ago. Sure, maybe five years ago we had a shot. Now it's like it's kind of a life on its own. It's just going to keep uh, uh, adapting. Uh, but I think we have to get to the origin. We have to get to like what is what's actually driving this. And and I think you can look at other actors, but you know I think you know we're we're in this era of great power conflict, and Russia, China, Iran are pretty much behind all the things that are going wrong in the world. But in our hemisphere, it is Venezuela. And I know I've driven that point home a lot, but it is. Uh, Venezuela, I mean, Nicaragua is Venezuela. You know, Cuba is Venezuela. Bolivia is Venezuela. Venezuela has become something that we've never seen in our lifetime in the Western Hemisphere. Um, and, you know, we're not going to solve any of these problems, whether it's migration, whether it's fentanyl, whether it's drug rates, until we go after Venezuela, because they're the ones that are driving all the instability in the Western Hemisphere, and it's by design. I mean, Hugo Chavez said this. He said, we're going to take out the United States. And we thought he was joking, but he was serious. And he got all the power from his uh, autocratic neighbor, uh, friends abroad. You know, and, and I always said that when once China starts to show their hand in Venezuela, then we know we're heading towards the end game. And that trip from Maduro to Beijing, you know, this is, Xi Jinping missed the G20 because he was hanging out with Maduro. Um, and, and I think that, that what, what, what that meeting, they signed what they call an all-weather strategic partnership. They already had a partnership, but they just formalized it. Um, what we're going to start to see when we realize that China and Venezuela is going to blow our minds. Uh, I'm talking about hypersonic stuff, you know, satellites, weapons. Uh, these guys are ready for war, and and we're not. And migrants, terrorists, and drugs. That's a, that's a bit, yeah, that's, that's how they operate, right? Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, their whole their whole 
the whole concept of unrestricted warfare is, is basically to break our will to fight before the fight begins. Yeah. And, and that's what this border stuff is all about. They're, they're, they're penetrating us so, uh, infiltrating us so bad that, you know, when fighting starts happening in any part of the world, most notably Taiwan, we're going to see all kinds of insurgencies uh, uh, that's going to make Antifa and Black Lives Matter look like a, a walk in the park. Yeah. Uh, they're going to go after our electrical grid. They're going to go after our food supply or water supply. And this is something the United States has never faced. We've never had a problem. And it all begins by just letting all these people inside through our border. Like, and think about that, right? We talk about the ones that are encounters and they're apprehended. But think about the gotaways. Like, it's so easy to seek asylum in the United States. You literally just got to say something like, you know, I'm persecuted or whatever. And they give you a court date and they give you money. <laughs> and, a, and, a, and, a, and think, think of the person that's not willing to do that. The person that's <laughs> like, I don't really want to get anywhere near a border. I don't have to say anything. I'm, I'm going to go through this administration. Yeah, yeah, under this administration, right? So those are pretty much the pipe hitters. Those are the folks that are complete ghosts, and they want no traces and tracking of who they are inside this country. Uh, and we're talking about, I don't know, I don't know what the latest number for the gotaways this year, but it's in the hundreds of thousands. You know, That's crazy. In other words, we're a failed state just like Venezuela. I mean, it's, it's just, it, this is unbelievable. Where can people find more of your work? Okay, so yeah, a couple of places. Uh, so I run a think tank, Center for Secure Free Society. Uh, you can go to our website, securefreesociety.org, or follow us on social media. We're going to be putting out a big report on, on migration soon. I've been overdue on this, and i telling Daniel about it for a year, and finally going to finish it. Um, and I'm also a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. I'm doing a lot of like uh, op-eds and other articles I'm writing with Heritage. So if you go to, if you just put my name at Heritage Foundation, you'll find some of the stuff that I've written about. I've written actually a little bit about Iran and China and Latin America uh, with the Heritage Foundation, uh, some recent articles. Wow. If only we would have been focused on this for all these years rather than... Yeah. We, we, we talked about it. We talked about it. I remember like... You know, I mean, you and I have been doing, talking about this for a while, but I mean, <laughs> no, no one wants to talk about our own hemisphere. It's always cool to virtue signal about Gaza, have our troops in some base in Iraq to help the Shiites while the Shiites are attacking us. I mean, it's just, it is such a dumpster fire. There's no affirmative vision I'm seeing, and I'm glad you're giving one. Um, we always needed that new Monroe doctrine, and and I think yeah, that absolutely. that you know for a fraction of the money that we spent in Iraq and Afghanistan, all this stuff for a fraction of the money, um, we could have used soft power, make the right alliances, um, keep the bad actors out of our hemisphere, and obviously shut down the magnets of our border. And, uh, you know, it's our own weakness invites all of this. And it begins with our border. Um, That's why we need states to have the power to deport where the feds are unwilling to do it. Uh, Joseph, again, at J.M. Hugh Meyer on Twitter. Thanks so much for joining us. And thank you, you all. I know it's been a short week, but we'll be back again Monday. God bless you all. Have a great and terrific weekend.